Yo, what up? This is Dart Adams. Uh, this will be episode seven of Dart Against Humanity. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty much recording this one because it's time. And I just saw my Celtics lose to the Cleveland Cavaliers again. Uh, they lost in seven games. They were up 2-0. Then they got tied 2-2. They went up 3-2. They couldn't finish. They couldn't finish them off in game six. Couldn't win in game seven. Uh, they had a horrible game seven, actually. You can't tempt the fates too much. If anybody was watching Game 7 and hoping, oh, the Celtics will come home and they'll just win because they're home. I mean, no. And also, Charles Barkley predicted they were going to win. So I knew right there that there was something not good happening forthcoming. And also, if you watch Game 6, the Celtics shot over 50%. They hit 13 threes. Uh, Jalen Brown was hot. Terry Rozier was hot on the road. Uh, But... They lost the battle of the boards, and LeBron James had a 46-point damn near triple-double, and he got some help from his bench, and Kevin Love was out. And if they couldn't win that game six, I didn't feel good about game seven. And I know a lot of people had the expectations. I don't do expectations. I don't do predictions. I don't do any of that. I don't... I believe games are won and lost on the basketball court. And to me, it's always I'll wait and see what happens. I have an idea of what I would like to happen. And you can think you have an idea of what's going to happen. But the fact of the matter is games are won and played on the court. And whatever plays out or whoever shows up to play is going to win the game. And you're not going to go to the finals winning one game on the road. Even the 2008 Boston Celtics managed to win two games on the road before they went to the NBA Finals and shocked the Lakers because people were like, they're a horrible road team, even though they were a good road team in the regular season. And I was going back and forth with the Celtics are a really good road team, but how come they can't get it done? And, you know, a lot of people were like, well, they don't have the closer. It was like they had Kyrie. And I was like, they were winning road games against tough teams without Kyrie, but the playoffs are a different animal. So... I mean, and also the weird thing that happens is with social media, people like to clown or make jokes or they're going to get these jokes off. And it's weird because I deal with, I do a lot of logic. So I'm whole brained. I'm INTJ. Um, I, I deal with like logic and facts because that's why I'm so good at like researching and putting things in like the proper perspective for timelines and things like that it really helps me with um what I do as far as like journalism and research so when I look at people talking about the Celtics did this this I'm like your team was watching them from home you were watching them from home like you're not even a Cavs fan I, LeBron James is a great player. He's great. Clearly, somebody's going to have to step up and knock him off. But it's not him. Basketball is a team sport. But I keep seeing this great player carry teams that aren't great to the finals and then getting beaten by another team. That's not his fault. It's just what happens. Somebody has to step up and compete. The Celtics, they keep stepping up their uh, timetable and they just fall short. 
They weren't supposed to be in the Eastern Conference Finals last season. They got wiped. And people were clowning them and having jokes. And then in the offseason, when they upgraded everything, people were like, they think they're going to be able to compete with the Cavs. Then they come out without the two big guns that they got in the postseason. And they almost eliminated the Cavs without them. And the jokes still come because the shit ain't based on logic or fact or reason. And then people are like, they choked. Um, If Kyrie was on the court with them for the series, then you might be able to say that. Um, If it was Kyrie and Gordon and they went up 2-0 and they couldn't win a road game, then they absolutely, you absolutely could say, yeah, they choked. But when you have a team that goes up 2-0, that no one expected to go up 2-0, then they tie the series, then the series gets tied 2-2, which everyone expected. Then they go up 3-2 and they can't close out when nobody expected them to do it and everybody was pulling for LeBron and they were just talking about how LeBron got this. Not the Cavs. LeBron got this. Then it's not really a choke. They lost. And it's horrible, but I've seen, I'm 42 going on 43. I've seen so many teams in every sport have to go through this process where they lose, they come up short, they almost made it, they almost made it to the mountaintop, it's disappointing, and then they come back fresh the next season. I've seen it happen with the Bulls. I've seen it happen with the, before that. I've seen it happen with the Pistons. I've seen it happen with the Celtics. I've seen it happen, you know, with the Lakers. I've seen it happen with so many teams. I've seen it happen with the um with the Houston Rockets. You know, like every team has to go through this process. With the Celtics, when they got the big three, it happened in reverse. They had to worst the first. Uh, season they had 66 wins they win the championship 2009 because of the wear and tear of the other uh, of the previous uh, postseason you know uh, KG gets injured they don't return to the finals in 2009 2010 they're kind of beat up and they're older but when the playoffs happen it, it kicks in they have an injury they don't win the 2010 championship and from there it was just about prolonging the run so it was something that happened in reverse for the Celtics. The Celtics thought that they were going to have like a 2-3 championship run. It didn't happen. That's why assumptions and expectations are a joke. Because the games are won and lost on the court. You can think something's going to happen. But if it doesn't play out, it doesn't play out. You still got to play the season regardless. That's what it is. Anyway, I don't want to talk about that anymore. I actually wanted to talk about something else. Uh, so, something that's far more upsetting than what happened to the Celtics. My, I say my top three favorite novels of all time, as far as influence for me, are probably um, the autobiograph- autobiography of Malcolm X by Alex Haley and Malcolm X. Um, probably the second one would be down these mean streets by Perry Thomas. If you haven't read it, it's pretty much the the official book of Black Tinos. So Perry Thomas, Down These Mean Streets, is one of the most influential books to me because Perry pretty much wrote it the way he speaks. It's very conversational. It's very straightforward. It's very matter of fact. 
He doesn't try to use too much flowery prose that doesn't make me feel like trash because I could never write like that. Even though I adore, you know, reading things by Richard Wright or, you know, uh, James Baldwin, just Langston Hughes. It's like their command of language was just something that I always aspired to, but I knew I couldn't replicate. So I just abandoned it for the longest when I was younger, when I was a writer, I tried to do things like the books I read or the novels I read that I loved. And I read, that's not me. Just be yourself. And Perry Thomas's book, Donnie's Mean Streets, definitely um, opened that up for me. And also um, Makes You Want to Holler by Nathan McCall. That's another book that actually did the same thing. Um, but that was later on. Um, and also um, Monster by um, Monster Cody Scott. I think that's the name of the book. That was another one. I actually gave that to a a blood that I knew when I was at Morgan State University. He was from Pittsburgh. I gave him that book and he he thanked me for it when I left campus. So I, I know that meant a lot. Anyway, so but the other book is um Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit four fifty one. Uh I read this book for the first time at Boston Latin in the eighth grade, one of my eighth grade years. I had multiple eighth grade years at Boston Latin. So I read it and I stole it because I loved it that much. And the thing about Fahrenheit 451, it always really captured my attention was that it was a short book, but it dealt with uh, numerous subjects and things and did a, and predicted a lot of things that would come. And really, like, got it the core of things that were changing in society and were in danger of changing if we didn't watch ourselves. And these things have come to pass, a lot of them. Uh, the one issue with Fahrenheit 451 is that it was written in 1953. Well, it was published in 1953. So if you're going to adapt this book, there are a lot of things that you have to change and update to make it work with today's society and technology, what have you. Now, anybody who's read this book understands that. I, I feel like anybody who's read this book understands that. And one of the th biggest issues with the Fahrenheit 451 is that the one film adaptation that exists from 1966 does not do the film justice in any way, shape, or form. And there was no way it could because... Uh, Technology was so limited, there was nothing anybody could have done who makes film to really put these things across. Maybe an animated version would have worked, but I that's what, I don't know who would have even thought to make one or like what studio would have had to. That would have been a, a, an undertaking. But with the way technology is today and the the studios with the budgets that they have and all the people the visionaries that exist that make these amazing films that we see today uh Fahrenheit 451 is a property that really should have come to fruition by now by a major studio it's topical 
it's timeless and quite honestly it's emblematic of what's happening today me as a journalist i really believe i totally believe that i look around every year and i look at the things that fahrenheit 451 predicted that actually happened and came to pass so um hbo announced was it last year or maybe late 2006 um, that they had finally acquired Fahrenheit 451. Michael B. Jordan was going to be a producer that were bringing on this team of young writers that kind of had an idea how to update it for the present day. They were going to use social media and all these other things. And I was like, oh, cool. Because one of my dreams has always been like one of my dream things to adapt was Fahrenheit 451. The other one has to be Downey's Mean Streets by Perry Thomas. How that has not been adapted I mean, I know why. I mean, unfortunately, people look at Latinos and they don't think that people are going to flock to see that. But I I beg to differ. If someone adapted Down These Mean Streets and made it a film, people would go and see it. Just like they went to see uh, fucking Carlito's Way, you know, even though that wasn't an actual Latino in the lead role. You know what the fuck I'm talking about. Um I just it just saddens me that people have to see receipts for Coco before they're like, hey, people go to these movies. I'm like, come on, fam. And also, it was a Pixar film, wasn't it? Or some animated film. I mean, do that with people. You know, like Mi Familia happened. Know what I'm saying. Anyway, um, but back to Fahrenheit 451 and what a clusterfuck it was. So. Anybody who's read the book, everybody doesn't love this book, which I totally get. I've seen critiques of it by people that are like, there are these issues with it as far as weak uh, weak women and everything else. I'm like, yeah, this is an issue that's prevalent in sci-fi. A lot of sci-fi books don't write humans well because they don't really delve deep into like human interaction like other books do and I feel it's because a lot of sci-fi writers are so deep into the science or the other stuff that they're doing and they're trying to get across that they fuck up the the simple dynamic of human interaction you know or like interpersonal or intrapersonal relationships group dynamics things like that and sometimes it can actually you know sometimes it works a lot of times it doesn't. So, but also, you know, Ray Bradbury wrote this in the 50s. So, you know, if you read uh, Martian Chronicles, I think it is. There's also a lot of things in there to make you go, if I had to update this. Anyway, so Fahrenheit 451 gets adapted and it's a shit show. Um, there are a lot of things about this adaptation that just rub me the wrong way. Being a writer... One thing I always do when I watch one of my favorite properties get adapted is I always wonder how they fucked it up. There's some core things, crucial things that you need to have in the film from the book and hope that they translate. And then there are things that you're going to have to completely change around. And then there are things you're going to have to discard because they won't translate to the big screen. They just won't. Uh, for instance, there's a 
part in the book where Montag, Guy Montag is the protagonist. He's a firefighter. He's on the train. And there's this thing about um, Denim's dentrophis. And they keep repeating it, keep repeating it. The idea behind it is there are ads on the train that are drilling into your brain. And you can't get it out. And it's just like you don't have a moment of peace, a respite. There's always something attacking you. There's always some stimulation. And that's another point in the book that they, uh, the kids don't really read anymore. They have them go to these like 24-hour places where they smash things or they're like, they commit crimes and just go out and go crazy. Uh, people don't read anymore. Everything, uh, like uh, there's a part where Captain Beatty, who's the fire chief, explains to Montag how everything got to how it was where first you had this and you had these big long books and then people were like this is boring so they kept truncating stuff truncating stuff then they would just like edit it further edit further down and then it's like everything turned into a fucking cliff's notes you know and finally it's like everything that offended people they got rid of and then they kept doing it and they kept doing it and they kept downsizing things to the point now where it's like they just got rid of all the books because anybody can interpret anything any way and anybody can be uh, offended by anything. I know it's where the PC police uh, excuse comes in. So rather than have to deal with it because ideas and books and and all these other things are what divides people and ideologies. So rather than do that. Let's just get rid of it all, even though that's not going to fix anything. It's just going to bury things further under the rug. So ultimately, that's what had a lot to do with them doing away with books, evil, mean books and those dirty words. Uh, but they don't totally get that across, even though they try to. And they throw in things like, okay, let's try to update it today. So there's an older person like, when I came up, we used to do this and this. And we our lives were different. And then Beatty says to him, he's like, well, by the time your generation dies, we're not like everybody's going to completely forget that happens. And if me being a 42 year old guy, how many times have I fucking said my age? But me being a 42 year old dude in um, journalism. I look around and I see there aren't a lot of people my age still writing because, they've, again, they've been pushed to the margins. So they just had to leave because they wanted a job with a living wage and they didn't want to deal with the bullshit. But they were pretty much pushed out. And it's kind of like that now because there are a lot of young writers who don't have the background, who don't have the experience, who don't know exactly what they're talking about. And it doesn't matter if they know what they're talking about because the people that are their editors who are older their job isn't to, hey, this, is, this isn't right, this isn't wrong, this is wrong. Uh, actually, I shouldn't even run this article at all. Because if everything was the way it was supposed to be, a lot of the editors that are my age or, or slightly younger, any of them worth their salt wouldn't run these articles. But it's about ad revenue and getting those clicks and getting, and getting those eyes on the site so, so you, you know the site stays open and the lights stay on. So, again, none of it matters. And it's pretty much the same thing going on in Fahrenheit 451. But there are so many ideas and so many characters that were just 
crucial to the story that I'm missing. And things like the mechanical hound. Where are the mechanical hounds? You couldn't make the mechanical hounds for the 1966 version. HBO budget, you could have done a mechanical hound or hounds. You could have found a way to put them in there. I think that they were crucial. I mean, you had fucking drones for the for the the cameras for the network, whatever. The internet is called the the nine. So they have the internet, which is pretty much edited. Of course, it's edited. Everything is edited. Um, they did so many things in this film that just were huge disappointments. And they threw in extra stuff that didn't make sense. All right. One of the key things is Montag's relationship with Beatty versus relationship with his wife. He has a wife named Mildred. All right. Crucial relationship between Montag and his wife, Mildred. Because you have to contrast um, his Montag's relationship with his wife with his relationship with a young girl who's his next door neighbor or she lives down the street named Clarice McClellan. So Montag has these talks with Clarice. He walks her home or sees her on the way home from the firehouse every day. And he notices that she's different than everybody else she walks slowly she stops she's thoughtful she watches things she watches things like how the rain hits flowers you know she has these thoughts that other people don't have and the reason why she has these thoughts is because the whole well pretty much world the cities everybody is pretty much sedated they're constantly fed things whether it's uh, news or information, which is a lot of fake news and a lot of bullshit information. And it's a lot of stimulus. And there's a part about cars drive so fast that they made the billboards extra long so people can read them. You know, there's a lot of detail. Well, Montag realizes that his life is odd because he talks to Clarice and realizes that, hey, I, she's asking a lot of questions, things I never think about. Like, why am I a fighter fighter? Because my father was a fighter fighter and my grandfather was a firefighter. He looks around the firehouse. He notices the firemen all tend to either look alike or they all seem to have the same background. And, you, and it, the insinuation is that their fathers were firefighters. And maybe their fire, fathers before them were firefighters. And so he talks to Beatty and Beatty has these discussions with him where Beatty clearly is a reader or has was a reader. And it's and it's told to you that pretty much if you become a fire chief, you learn more about, you know, books and what have you. And just like things of that nature. And um, there are a lot of characters that are just phased out of the book. Granger is phased out. And the, um, in the film, they put Granger as his father's name in flashbacks. And I'm like, wait, what? Uh, there's a man named Faber who actually works with Montag. Uh, and actually has him like a machine in his ear, you know, like a, a ear. So he feeds him stuff when he asks some um, baby questions to try to get to the bottom of actually like, cause he's supposed to be infiltrating the firehouse. 
And also, there's supposed to be a war going on. In the film, the war already happened. It was the Second World War. There's actually a war going on. And at the same time, there's supposed to be a... um, I believe there's a war going on. And there's also a, an election. And there's a part about how everybody judges one of the candidates by what he looks like as opposed to what he says, the content of what he's saying. So everybody's watching. And the thing is that all the um the walls are whole TV screens. The entire wall is a TV screen. And so uh, the dream is to have four walls and they're called parlors. And the people that are always on the screens are called the family. So the dream is that everybody's supposed to have four walls. Like that's how you know you made it. And just all that working. But the thing is that uh, Guy Montag realizes that, yo, I don't remember a lot of stuff. And it's because the people are sedated or in the in the film version, they give them these things called drops. And he realizes that the reason why they give them the drops is so people don't remember things. Because if you remember things, then you might put stuff together and if you put stuff together then you might rebel when you have more information and i think that's another reason why it's crucial that people understand it as a journalist or when you put out stuff when you don't give a lot of background information and you don't give a lot of facts and you don't do real research and you put something forward it's like you're hiding something by omission so that's one of the things that happens in Fahrenheit 451. But they don't really get into that. So, okay, one of the things they do in Fahrenheit 451 is um, they turn Clarice into... They make her older. First off, Clarice is a, high, is, a, is a high schooler. She's a teenager. She lives with her family. And one of the things she does in her house is she talks to her... God damn, why am I doing a fucking book review? Uh, she talks to her grandfather who tells her about how things used to be. And apparently there aren't that many people that were older back in the days that are around and apparently her, none of her family members have parlor they don't have a parlor they don't have the family in the house you know they actually sit around and talk they apparently aren't under the same th- influence that everybody else is um clarice doesn't go out with the other kids she doesn't go to the the sporting events she doesn't visit the 24-hour houses where they smash things you know, she talks about how a girl was killed by a car crossing the street and nobody even paid attention and like a whole bunch of stuff like that. And he's like, wait, what? And um, of course, Beatty's just like, she's weird. Uh, Mildred's like, she's weird. And another thing that happens is early on in the book, um, Mildred ODs on pills. And there's a, a uh, an entire part where... They detail how a group of guys comes with a machine, pumps her stomach, and then revives her with this elaborate machine. And then they just leave because it happens all the time. And then when Mildred wakes up, she's just hungry. And she doesn't remember it happening. And he's like, wait, how did, what, did you try to kill yourself? Or did you, did you accidentally overdose and Mildred's is like I took pills then I took two more then I forgot and took two more then I forgot and took two more and when you're reading the book at first you don't understand whether or not she really tried to kill herself and didn't care or if she was just so gone that 
she didn't remember taking pills and she kept taking pills. And then later on in the book, when you see the interactions with people, oh yeah, and there's another part, Montag takes books and he's told by Beatty that if you take books, all you gotta do is return them in 24 hours. So he takes books, he brings them home, and he reads them to Mildred's uh, friends at a dinner party. And that really, you know, gets everybody that raises that raises eyebrows at the firehouse, you know, some alarms. There are so many things that happen in this book that are completely wiped. But what they do with Clarice is they age Clarice up. And instead of her being Montag's next door neighbor and uh, uh, living on the same block, she's an older woman who's actually um, snitching to Beatty. And Montag is like his right hand. And Beatty, of course, is the chief of the firehouse. So Montag knows her through him. And she's giving him the tips. So when they get a, an alarm at the firehouse, they go and they find people. They pull them out the house or whatever. They inspect the house. They find books. They burn the books. And this version, the film version, they do it a step further. And they don't explain it. They take away people's citizenship and then lock them up and erase their identity, which none of this is explained. And also... um. So the fire trucks or the, uh, one of the symbols is the salamander. And I think there's a chapter called the salamander and the eel. So they call the, the people who uh, distribute graffiti, and I'm using air quotes, you can't see, books or literature or any information, including what information is uploaded to the internet for people to access, they call that graffiti, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Um... And they call them eels. All the people that are doing things that are that could be considered um, against the government or against the status quo, they call them eels. And they don't explain what an eel is at any point. They don't get. In, they don't explain anything. They just go, go, go. And I'm like, what's what? And then somebody who read the book is like, I know why they where they got the term from, but. They're not explaining shit. And Clarice, you know, she's just this woman who lives out in the outskirts with all these, with everybody else who's uh, pushed to the to limits in the city, who don't have, who aren't like the citizens that are uh, like with everybody else. Is a lot, if you read a lot of cyberpunk novels or books, then you're kind of familiar with that concept of people, you know living low but it's high tech so it's that but at the same time they have like analog things like books records you know it was it was a mess is basically what I'm saying and when you watch it as somebody who is a writer and someone who like always my dream is to adapt properties that I love that I can extract the important things from and update and know what to what's not going to work in film or television setting but what absolutely has to be there and what we cannot compromise on they compromised in too many ways that were just 
you can't do it. So I don't know. I'm really upset at what happened with Fahrenheit Fahrenheit 451. But uh, when we move on from like adaptation, there's other types of adaptation, of course. Uh, one of the biggest ones right now is uh, comic book films. So I saw Deadpool 2. Now, Deadpool is a different animal entirely in terms of adaptation. Why? Because Deadpool was a comic book that was self-aware. Deadpool knew he was a comic book character. Deadpool broke the fourth wall. Deadpool referenced things that happened in comic books. Deadpool referenced things that happened in um, pop culture. Deadpool referenced things that happened in real life. Deadpool would talk to a character in the book and say, oh, yeah, that happened to you in Iron Man 187. And they go, what? He's like, nothing. So if you're going to adapt Deadpool, it's a completely different animal and it's a completely different um, challenge. Now, a lot of people have complained about Deadpool, too, because they feel like it's too aware of itself and there were too many pop culture references. And I'm like... The man was in like five books at once, you know. Like, did, if you if you read Deadpool regularly, you know, eh, not really, because not only is he going to reference things that happened in the real world, and he's going to start referencing things that happened in the MCU and the DCU, because he can't, because that's the that's his formula. That's what he does. So from that perspective, yeah, it worked. I don't think they did a bad job in adapting what Deadpool is in his core. Here's the problem, though. They did so much work with riffing and putting in jokes and these references that the core story itself was weak, even though the movie worked. For instance... The idea behind the film is that, oh, Cable's in it. So you think Cable's the villain. And you have to save this kid from getting killed by Cable. Cable's not the villain, though. It's sort of like how um, in Captain America, Winter Soldier, Winter Soldier is portrayed as the villain, but it's a red herring. He's not the villain. The villain is, the villain is Zemo. He's being controlled, you know? So in Deadpool 2, Cable's not the villain. But if you try to dig like, wait, who was the actual villain in this film? So much stuff happens that you don't realize, yo, I don't know who the villain was. Then you realize, oh, that guy's the villain. That's that's how crazy that film is. I actually had a Twitter thread about it because I was talking about like um, MCU villains and you can't you would have to go on IMDB and look up the name of the guy ultimately who was the villain in Deadpool because there were so many characters there was so much stuff going on there were so many like one-off people there were so many uh cameos but the film was films are usually based on antagonist protagonist and an arc this thing happens which leads to this we get that early on we get Deadpool's uh, motivation for what he's doing and who he's going after actually that's wrong because the person he's going after we don't see them for the rest of the film 
and then it's just him trying to die. I don't really think that's a um a spoiler because he's always trying to die. He can't. If that's a spoiler, then that's a goddamn shame. He can't die. He regenerates. Anyway. So that's two different levels of adaptation. I actually did a piece talking about how Logan worked and Deadpool worked because Fox followed the strict guidelines for how to adapt those properties in the X universe. However, these same um, strict guidelines and rules don't work for X-Men films because there's too many characters. I think I have to revise it because they kind of updated that formula for Deadpool 2. They use more characters, but they still found ways around um, the interaction of the um, of the uh, of the characters. One of the things that I talked about in that piece was that they don't have too many characters on screen that are recognizable interacting. And if they do, it's usually one way. It's usually one way interactions, or it's one person going back to one person and another person interjects. It's not a group dynamic of everybody talking. And one of the ways they got around it in Deadpool 2 is they have X-Force. Then they don't have X-Force. I'm not going to go any deeper into that. And I'm like, oh, cool. It's going to be a bunch of people. No, it isn't. And it comes back to the exact same thing that I highlighted in that Medium article about how Deadpool and Logan worked. So... When when you're a writer, it's really hard to watch film a lot of times or movies, even TV shows, because you're always looking f- for where's this going? Uh, how, what's going to happen next? Does this make sense? Why are they doing that? They should have done this. Because one of the biggest things about writing or storytelling in general is you have to keep the people or the viewers or the audience engaged and in order to be engaged there's this thing where you have to um suspend belief if you can't suspend belief or get the overwhelming majority of the audience to suspend belief and buy into what's happening on the screen You've lost everybody and ultimately what you made is not going to be successful. Now, how do we rate success? Um, If it's a major studio film, I guess box office take. uh, But also it could be a cult classic or it could be a cult film, in which case it doesn't do well initially at the box office. It comes out uh, for video or DVD or on demand or... It hits the red box, Netflix, Hulu. You really just go on names, streaming services, um, or what have you, and it grows from there. And then years and years later, people are still quoting it and talking about it, and it becomes influential in that way. So that's also another way to rate to rate success in terms of in terms of um in terms in those terms. But if you can't get people to suspend belief 
and care about what's happening on the screen, you're lost. It's over. And that's a crucial thing for when you're watching anything, especially nowadays in the day and like when we binge stuff, binge worthy material, binge worthy shows have to make you want to immerse yourself in it. Perfect example. The last show I binged is the show uh, Killing Eve comes on BBC America. Eight episodes. Uh, it came on every Sunday night, so there was no way in hell I was going to be watching it when it came on. I was doing other stuff. Uh, I actually ended up watching the first episode by mistake. My brother DVR'd this, epi- this um, thing about uh, Orphan Black, and it was just going back through the series of Orphan Black. And of course, I, I, I think by like the fourth season, I was like, this is a lot. You know, I'm, I'm just checking out. I'm tapping out of Orphan Black. I'll catch up when it's over. And I think I was watching like um, something else, uh, Holt and Catch Fire or some, some other shit. Or um, one of the zombie movies or Into the Badlands or something. But I ended up watching that. And right after it was still recording was the first episode of Killing Eve. So I watched it and I was like, yo, this is pretty damn good. And also it has amazing music um amazing music in it so that's always something that's gonna catch my attention and the show's great so i watched episode two episode three episode four episode five and sometimes you have to watch the episode twice because there are a lot of things that happen that you're gonna miss but the point i'm making is that it engaged me and it also engaged a lot of other people because people were talking about it on twitter and the finale just happened so when you look at that, you can look at it, Joe. Oh, I like that. I like that series or whatever. But as a writer and a creative, I look at that as I take cues from it to know what I'm supposed to do. And I look for elements in it. I don't just watch it as just like entertainment. I watch it as inspiration, as impetus to make something myself. And uh, what I do. So, like, for most people, they could just watch a movie or a show and they just like it. And it's just something that they like. I don't do, I watch something and I watch it again and again and again because I'm trying to learn from it. I'm trying to see what works. I'm trying to see where, where, what did they do? And at what point did something happen that caught my attention or, or caught my imagination that dragged me in? And from that, I get cues and I understand what to do when I write or when I create or what to do when I get the opportunity to create. I look back at things. I read uh, graphic novels all the time uh, and I just look and I'm just like, which one of these properties would work best on film? And if it, and if it, if this opportunity happened, where would it work best? And what format would it work better as a Netflix, Hulu, FX show? You know, would it work better weekly? Should it be eight episodes, 10 episodes, 13 episodes? Which arc should we use? Which characters are going to completely get omitted? 
you know, which ones are going to be uh, amalgamized. Like these two minor characters are going to become one person. These are all things that I look at. Well, these are all things anybody who wants to do anything like this look at. And it's, it's just what you do as a writer or what you do as a creative. And I learn from everything. Because that's what you're supposed to do. I don't just do things just to do them to pass the time. For me, it's all work. It's all constructive. And after I just watched the Celtics get their asses handed to them, I don't sleep anyway, but I'm especially mad or disappointed. So I just channel it into something else. Back in 1996, I discovered that I don't really need to sleep like other people. And I had to find constructive things to do if I was going to be awake and also to pass the time. Also, when I turned 21, I think it was my 21st birthday. Was it my 21st birthday? A book came out by a man named um, Chuck Palahniuk called, uh, I'm sure you've heard of it, Fight Club. And the protagonist in that book didn't sleep either. But he lived, but he, he splintered, his personality splintered because he was actually suffering from sleep deprivation. Like he wanted to sleep. And then when he didn't sleep, his alter ego did things. I don't sleep because I can't turn my fucking brain off. I'm not suffering. I'm dealing with something and it's not like it ruins my quality of life. I made it work for me. So right now I'm recording this at what? It's 8:30 a.m. right now as I'm speaking. I didn't sleep last night. Nights bleeding today for me, day bleeds in the night. If I do sleep at some point, it's for a short amount of time, maybe 4 hours and people don't even notice that I slept and I just get get up and go back to what I was doing. But again, I don't recommend anyone try that. This is something that's natural for me. There's nothing I hate more than when people tell people, someone else something that they do that works for them. And then they try to adopt it. No. You find what works for you. Everybody's lifestyle, everybody's process isn't the same. Please stop following other people and trying to do the shit that they do. Back in the days, there was a dude named um, Lester Bangs. He used to do this thing called robo-tripping. He used to drink cough syrup and some other shit. And he would just write that way. He would get sauced and write and stay up and do all that stuff. And people read about it. There's a book called um, Something in Carburetor Dung. We had a dog-eared copy at my old job when I worked at... um, This place called CD Spins no longer exists anymore. And I used to read this man's reviews and there were young journalists, the young people who would read stuff by Lester Bangs and and like stuff by the man who created Gonzo Journalism, you know, and they would try to. What's the best word I could use? Replicate the processes and the things that they did. And I never understood that for the life of me. These men did things 
that worked for them and they were crazy, you know? Like, I don't understand why you would try to do anything Bukowski did. That's what he did. I read about what these cats did, the heroin they took, the drugs they took, or shit Hemingway did, and I'm like, yeah, okay. I shrug. I'm not doing that shit. I'm not them. They ain't me. I haven't smoked, drank, done a drug, anything of the like. I've done nothing my entire life because also I'm a huge control freak. And I don't like to have the idea that something else other than me did something or I wasn't in control of what I'm doing. I, I, can't, st- I can't even stand that idea. It's also why, like, if I'm going to do something... I want to have creative control of it because I don't want to compromise my vision and my integrity or anything. I want to have control. And it's also why I don't pitch. I think I've explained this before because why am I having someone else try to tell me the value of what I'm doing? I know what the fuck the value of what I'm doing is. I want you to pay me for what I do. So again, having an opinion and a vision And a clear idea of what you want to do. And having conviction. And a voice. And balls. Doesn't really help you. In the world of journalism. Especially music journalism. Especially right now when everybody is glorified PR. And they don't talk about the craft. And don't care to. Because it's not going to bring in eyes and viewers and clicks. I just noticed this went to 50 minutes. I have nothing else to say. So, whatever.